0: This is In Sickness.
1: I'm Angeliki. I'm a second year doctoral student in history at the University of Oxford. I'm based in the UK. I study rumors of epidemic disease in 17th century North America. So essentially I study how people thought about and spoke about diseases. I'm particularly interested in the role of disease in colonial contexts.
0: I'm Maya. I'm American, but a permanent resident of Canada. I have a master's in public health, and my work focuses on the sexual and reproductive health of adolescents, infectious disease, and monitoring and evaluation. My primary area of focus is sub-Saharan Africa, and I'm extremely interested in reflections of colonialism in disease and public health.
1: So today we're talking about
0: syphilis. So I am going to start by giving just a quick overview of this disease. So syphilis is a super common STD. And as is my want, I'm going to start with a quick note about terminology. Uh, So mostly these days we hear STI, which means sexually transmitted infection. And we also hear STD, which is a sexually transmitted disease. They are even today typically used interchangeably. But an STI is when you have an infection, and it hasn't become a fully fledged disease yet but it becomes a disease when it starts disrupting your normal bodily function. So technically all STDs start out as STIs. And when you have an STI? You really don't know it yet, which is why small plug here, getting regular STI screens is so important. And there are different regulations and recommendations about how frequently you should get them. So, for example, if you are having frequent sex with multiple partners, especially if it is unprotected, you should be getting it much more frequently than if you are in a long-term monogamous relationship. But they are always important. Get
1: yours today. (laughs) So if you're a single person, roughly how many... How how often do you need to be getting them? Like how many per year? Depending on your risk status, if you're like high risk,
0: I would say probably every three months, like super high risk. Every six months is a safe bet. Great. <laughs> <Thank> you, Maya. <laughs> My pleasure. Syphilis is caused by a bacteria called Treponema pallidum. This bacteria is in the family. Now get ready for this. Spirocatusia. <laughs> oh no, I just read it. It's literally just A-E-A-E-A-E-A-E-A-E. Okay, the bacteria that causes syphilis is in the family Spirochetaceae. <laughs> Let me give another couple options. Spirochetaceae, Spirochetaceae, Spirochetaceae. <laughs> so this bacteria in this family also causes yaws, pinta, and As an aside, I had to look up all three of those diseases (laughs) and they are totally crazy. Uh, The main difference between those three and syphilis though is that uh, syphilis is the only one that's really transmitted sexually, whereas the other ones are transmitted um, by direct contact with the infection. So for the curious, like I was, yaws is a tropical disease that has really hard, large sores and they open up into a lesion and those eventually heals but it can get into your bones, especially in your nose for some reason, and then the bones become misshapen. It also affects the skin on your palms and on the soles of your feet, which get really thick and break open. Um, And one thing you'll notice is that a lot of these areas and the symptoms are super similar to syphilis. Pinta, also really similar, is also transmitted by touching open sores. That is endemic in South America, and if you listened to our last episode, you remember that endemic means that it's common in a population. So Bejel, finally, is basically non-sexual syphilis. It's chronic. It begins in childhood. It also starts with the lesions, then moves to the bones, and specifically targets the nose. Uh, One thing I was curious about amidst all of these bizarre names is where the name syphilis comes from. And it has had a lot of names through history, which Angela is going to do more later. But worth mentioning here is that the name Syphilis itself came from this guy called Girolamo Fracastoro in 1530. And he wrote this giant three-part parable. And it was about a character named Syphilis. Uh, He was a shepherd and he wouldn't sacrifice his sheep to the god Apollo. And so in turn, Apollo cursed the entire population with this disease and he named the disease Syphilis in punishment. The 1500s were a weird time. I cannot imagine writing a three-part novel to name a disease, but you know,
1: it didn't have Netflix, so. Apollo was meant to be one of the cool gods. Anyway, totally agreed. We're gonna talk about the 1500s in depth. Uh, a little bit later on. Another thing Angel's
0: going to touch on more is the origins and the typical locations of syphilis. So It turns out there's some debate as to where it's most common and also as to where it originated. These days, as with most STDs, it's everywhere, Um, but because of all those variants of the bacteria that are so similar that I talked about, it's hard to know where it really started. So as with those other diseases that I mentioned, syphilis is transmitted by coming into close contact with an open sore, those are called chancers. As those sores often occur, or pretty much exclusively occur, on genitalia, in assholes, around your mouth, in your mouth, it is therefore sexually transmitted because that is typically when you are touching those areas. Um, It's also possible to get it through mother-to-child transmission, so pregnant women can give it to their unborn child. Uh, Worth noting, though, is that syphilis is both preventable and treatable. So using protection like condoms or dental dams, as long as they cover sores or rashes, will protect you and any potential partners, although obviously not recommended. Um, It can also be passed through unwashed sex toys. So thorough washing with toy safe soaps is also a good move. You should always be cleaning your sex toys anyway. For the most part, good communication with partners and safe sex means you can be safe and prevent transmission. So one thing that I actually thought was really interesting is that syphilis has been known as the great pretender, I think throughout history, because each of their symptoms can masquerade super sneakily as the symptoms of other diseases. Um, And that's one of the things that makes it sort of fly under the radar for many people. Basically, it has four stages. In the primary stage, you get sores at the site of infection. So like I said, mouth, genitals, anus. Um, they're swollen, but they're not painful. And that's one of those things that you can kind of be like, oh, I have a cold sore, and just sort of brush it off. In the second stage, you get a little rashy, your lymph nodes get swollen, you might get a slight fever. Then there's a latent period where you have no symptoms at all and this means you can just live with it for years without knowing and like a long time which is freaky and why people should be getting frequent screenings
1: oh that's so freaky because like especially with how much we've all been freaking out lately about About like monitoring any sort of symptom of any kind, especially the like swollen lymph nodes, and it's allergy season, and we're all gonna die of coronavirus. And now we can add syphilis to the list of things we're kind of attentive to. Oh my god, oh okay, sorry. I'm just I'm just thinking about how soon I can go get tested. Like I'm just so freaked out now.
0: (laughs) Finally, you've got tertiary stage syphilis, and this is rare. But if your syphilis goes untreated, you can begin the third stage, and I hate this, anywhere from 10 to 30 years after you oh. were first infected. Oh, wow. And in the third stage, that's when it gets really, really dangerous. So it can infect your heart, your blood, bre- blood vessels, your brain, your nervous system. It damages everything. And then you die. Um, at any point in that tertiary phase, the disease can turn neuro and spread into your brain or your eyeballs. If you get infected with syphilis before you get pregnant, it has also been known to dramatically increase chances of stillbirth or other dangerous things happening during the birth process. Um, One other thing that I think it's important to note for my own personal interests is that syphilis has a high co-infection rate with HIV. So co-infection just means that when a person is infected with more than one disease at a time... But in this instance, the issue is that early stage syphilis can actually enhance the transmission of HIV from one person to the other. So especially an issue amongst men who have sex with men. I also mentioned to Bob that it is a treatable and preventable illness. So you can treat syphilis using a blood test. It can be diagnosed really easily and you get a dose of antibiotics and you can be treated. So that's yet another reason why it is so important
1: to get screened regularly.
0: That's the basics of the disease.
1: I wish I could say that I'm going to be dealing with something a little bit more cheerful, but I'm not. I'm going to talk you through some, uh, some terms and definitions, mainly early modern and Colombian exchange, because I'm going to be throwing them around quite a lot. But before I do that, I wanted to start with some of the names that syphilis has gone by over the years. The main one being pox or great pox. Um, So this is because of the rash that accompanies syphilis. But they started calling it the great pox to differentiate it from smallpox, which is another eruptive disease. Based on my reading, I think it's called the great pox because of its epidemic proportions. like You have smaller scale epidemics of smallpox all around, but since that's an endemic disease in most densely populated areas in Europe, in Asia, in Africa during this time and well before, it's maybe not as big of a deal. Quick run through of what a lot of different nationalities were calling this. So the Germans and the English called it the French pox, The Russians called it the Polish sickness. Poles called it the German sickness. The French called it the Neapolitan sickness. Flemish, Dutch, Portuguese, North Africans called it the Spanish slash Castilian sickness. And the Japanese called it the Canton rash or the Chinese ulcer. Uh, And I think I remember seeing in your notes earlier that the Turks used to call it the Christian sickness. Yeah. (laughs) So you see where I'm going here. I love it. (laughs) So everybody was, was naming it after their enemies, basically. And while I don't love making universal statements about disease history and what we can learn from it, I've, I've noticed this thing that's kind of everywhere. <laughs> uh, everyone's blaming epidemics on each other. That's because when epidemics arise, people want to explain and they want to assign blame. And we also call this scapegoating. Um, and the naming of syphilis over the years is kind of a case in point. And now for our definitions. So when I say early modern, um, this is a totally arbitrary category, which is sandwiched between what we think of as the Middle Ages and the modern period. So these are all things that are named well after the fact that help us fit history into these small, neat categories that don't actually exist, but that are kind of important for um, for thinking about like phases in technological and, and cultural change on a wide scale. So roughly when I say early modern, I mean 1400 to 1750. So in history, when you say modern, what you mean by that is anything after 1800, but that's obviously arbitrary and you can make a lot of arguments for like when the, when the 19th century starts and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so people like to think of the early modern period as a transition period for Western societies. It doesn't necessarily apply that well outside of Europe and North America. But it's the period of the Renaissance, so there's an overlap there. It's when the Reformation happens, so like Protestantism. It's the beginnings of modern chemistry. Uh, you've got loads of advances in medicine and in the study of anatomy. It's also a time of extreme conflict. So early modern Europe is very war-torn, full of religious schism, and it's notoriously unhealthy. It's the site of many epidemics which we could talk about forever. But again, we'll save those for for other episodes. But it's also an era of exploration and imperial expansion. So the Columbian Exchange, you heard me say that earlier, that refers to both a published work and a theoretical concept when you study uh, colonialism in North America, uh, actually just in the Americas generally. So on October 11th, 1492, Christopher Columbus reaches the Bahamas and sets off a chain of events. Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. (laughs) Stop it. So this is what is commonly known as the discovery of the new world, which I have a lot of problems with, but I'm not going to talk about that now either. But in any case, the Columbian Exchange is the theoretical concept slash book that for the first time ever considers the 1492 moment as a moment of exchange at all levels. So it's not just Europeans arriving on the shores of the Americas and going in there to subdue Native American populations. It's also an encounter between biological actors. This 1492 moment and this collision of cultures as also a collision between environments. And he's thinking about that as... Um, an introduction of plants, of animals, so like livestock. And it's also a really important moment because you have microbes, viruses, all of these fun diseases. So it's two ecosystems that are drastically changing one another. So you have things arriving from Europe, from Asia, from Africa, and then from the Americas, you get a ton of other stuff that goes back to the old world. So you'll hear me maybe saying new world, old world. And what I mean by that is new world, America's shorthand problematic, but I'm going to use it because it's easier. Uh, old world is Eurasia slash Africa. So what's really important when you're talking about talking about the Colombian exchange and this theoretical framework that I just talked about is that it is an effort to explain how a minority of Spanish explorers, uh, soldiers, adventurers, could have subdued these like, massive, complex, technologically advanced civilizations, such as the Aztec and the Incas. For a long time, um, as of 1972, historians and demographers are kind of looking at this civilizational collapse, this demographic catastrophe, really, um, and, and trying to make sense of it. And while that causes a lot of problems because it really simplifies the historical narrative, it's, it's trying to also address modern day inequalities in, in health, in, um, in income between Native American communities and, and like white Euro-American societies. Mm. One of the main reasons I, I have such a compl- complicated relationship with the Columbian Exchange is that the story is a lot more complicated than that. Um, there's no neat line to be drawn from then to now, which is kind of the point of my PhD thesis. Um, uh, the historic <laughs> the, the historical reality is really complicated. I mean, if you think about Spanish colonialism, for example, like a supposed colony of Spain is Florida, and Spain isn't actually able to hold that piece of their imperial holdings until, like, the mid 19th century because the Comanche they take horses from the spanish and guns from the spanish and they managed to control that area for like 300 years and that's a history that nobody ever talks about but they were the real imperial power all i'm saying is it's really complicated uh let's move on so yeah disease is one of these quote unquote explanations for our outcomes like why is the world the way that it is now why why was there such high mortality among Native American populations right. at the time and how could it potentially explain what's going on right now? So if you've heard the phrase virgin soil epidemic that's, that's the introduction of a novel epidemic disease into a non-immune population and that can have catastrophic effects and we normally use that phrase to describe what happened to Native American communities after old world diseases arrived. So most famously we think of smallpox and measles But what we forget is that in the minds of many, and definitely according to the Colombian exchange narrative, Europe got syphilis back in the Colombian exchange. And as Maya pointed out earlier, this is totally up for debate, like this is an extremely contentious topic even to this day. But before we move on, some other stuff that the old world got from the Colombian exchange. Tomatoes, potatoes, tobacco, coffee, chocolate and syphilis (laughs) all of those totally changed european society
0: we got some crazy kings out of it
1: we really did the other theories about where syphilis came from really really quick um so you have it came from the americas was it perhaps a misdiagnosed european disease that was subsequently transmitted to the new world a new ability to distinguish syphilis from leprosy like is it leprosy gone awry like was was syphilis developing in europe and also in the americas but it just sort Mm. of like presented in a different way so there are all these theories going around in recent years we've had a lot of advances in technical ability in what we call bioarchaeology or paleopathology which allow us to differentiate syphilis from Bejel or Yaws or these other troponymal diseases, a lot better than, than we might be able to using just a DNA uh, that allowed certain scholars to put forward this argument that actually you have skeletal remains going back like 8,000 years in the Americas that seem to be syphilitic, that seem to have died from syphilis. Whereas you don't find any of these skeletal remains in Europe, Asia, or Africa that are conclusively like syphilis. Mm
0: -hmm. I think it's interesting that before we had a bunch of evidence to back this up, there was this focus on what got brought back from North America and this sort of sociocultural implication that like we're blaming the venereal diseases that came back on the quote unquote natives, right? Like the indigenous peoples are getting a Mm -hmm. lot of the blame. but. You know, how much of that blame is placed on the people who actually did bring it back, which would be the sailors? Why aren't we mad at these sailors who were engaging in whatever form of sexual activity and bringing it home, and people were blaming it and having this really sort of, like, nasty narrative about Indigenous communities long before we actually had any evidence?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we've we already talked briefly about blame, and it's it's already in the formation of names for... Like, it's in, it's in the designation for syphilis itself. Like, when you were... Naming these diseases after your enemies. What you're actually doing is putting the blame on another. like you're you're putting the blame on your opponent and Saying that it is their fault because it's easier to deal with like I don't think it gets any more Other than this indigenous population of a place You're trying to conquer that has all these resources that you want who you've never seen before and who you only hear about through these really hostile accounts for for like hundreds of years
0: and i love that you use the word othering because i think this concept of othering especially in terms of like colonialism post-colonialism and like indigenous communities is so 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 interesting like simon de beauvoir mm-hmm. and like uh france fanon they all go into this really interesting concept of like how colonialists othered indigenous communities
1: i mean it's about it's about constructing the other but also constructing your own identity and deciding what you stand for like a lot of the time what happens when you're studying um you're studying colonial history and imperial history is that you you learn so much about the colonizer because they're constructing themselves according to what they are not based on what they have seen
0: Mm. that's a great point
1: uh, it's always the same thing. It's this concept of othering and, and blaming catastrophes, whether they be disease or natural disasters, on this group that is close to you, but that does not mm-hmm. resemble you. Okay, syphilis. So in 1494, syphilis breaks out in Naples during a military campaign by Charles Eighth, the French king, who is invading Italy. And syphilis quickly spreads back to France with the army and then quickly to the rest of Europe. It spreads overland via trade caravans and religious pilgrimage through Eurasia, from North Africa into sub-Saharan Africa, following imperial networks of maritime trade, so for example the empires of Spain and Portugal, and it was disseminated pretty much into every port. And we've said this before, we're going to say it about this disease as well, it's the first truly globalized infectious disease. So... You'll notice that we said that about Spanish flu last time, if you listened to the last one, and if you didn't, highly recommend. <laughs> and that's because, like with Spanish flu and like with COVID-19, at this point in history, so, so like the turn of the 16th century, this is still the fastest that anyone or anything has ever traveled. And even if that's slow by our standards, they do still have global networks for trade. And um, that's one of the interesting things about studying disease in the early modern period. It's another way to look at how people are communicating, how they're trading, and you really do realize quite early on that these networks are global. Upon its introduction in Europe, it's immediately clear to people that syphilis is sexually transmitted. And there are a lot of debates over whether medical treatment or attempts at prevention are appropriate given the cause 'cause, because this is quite a religious society and they're very fixated on sin. In the first few decades of the 16th century, people are terrified of getting infected. It's a panic. On March 6, 1496, the Parliament of Paris uh, decrees that the Hotel Dieu, so that's their uh, local hospital in Paris, will be barred from admitting patients Ooh, suffering from the pox so much for public health right they weren't just concerned about the health of their bodies they were concerned about the health of their souls like you have to when i say that these societies are extremely religious i mean these are individuals in societies that for the most part are totally fixated on the state of their soul as well as the state of their body and those two things interact in really complicated ways just as often as a, a physical treatment like a potion or whatever like Uh, they used mercury for for afflictions of the skin like this is something coming out of uh, coming out of the classical period that's being used as a physical treatment that will be used in conjunction with prayer with fasting with things that are going to help your soul as well as your body and ultimately for a lot of early modern christians like if you die that's fine as long because you're not really going to die because the last judgment will come and Jesus will come back and you will be resurrected along with your with your family that hasn't been sinful. Like if As long as your soul is safe, you're good. Exactly. So it's it's a totally different kind of worldview. Accordingly, syphilitics are expelled from the city of Paris in that same year. So this is 1496. Obviously, that's not an effective way of <laughs> containing the disease because not everybody's symptomatic and not everybody is, is identifying their symptoms properly either. Like, and so many are infected by this point. Like, It's spreading like wildfire. So many people are infected that within a few years, the ban is no longer respected. And uh, these like almost shanty towns like Lazaretto's, these little syphilis communities are popping up outside the city walls. And over the next 200 years after this, people aren't really sure what to do with those who are suffering and aren't really sure, like, should we be treating these people and rewarding their sinful behavior or should we be locking them up and trying to clean up the streets? Like should this be part of of our municipal program for dealing with homelessness? I don't know there was a lot of discussion about this and the disease seemed to be really intense like the symptoms it was extremely virulent until the end of the 16th century and some of the illustrations are frankly horrifying. So to recap it's a disfiguring brutal way to die and people were super freaked out because it was extremely common and uh, they weren't quite sure what to do with people who were suffering like visibly suffering from syphilis from the 17th century people with syphilis are are kind of being being judged for being sinful and they're being punished for that perceived sin in the 18th century people are fascinated by syphilis Um, it's everywhere in popular culture there's this really great book by Noel Gallagher called itch clap pox venereal disease in the 18th century imagination which covers all of the popular culture offerings to do with syphilis Um, that includes art drama novels yeah so if you were living in the 18th century picking up a novel chances are you would come across a character with syphilis that's how common it was so something that was a little bit more complicated in the 18th century is that gonorrhea and syphilis called CLAP and POX, respectively, were believed to be two phases of the same infection, with the CLAP developing into a confirmed POX, only if it was not swiftly or properly treated. So both infections, gonorrhea and syphilis, had a changing array of symptoms, not just through time, but in any single patient. So Maya talked about that before, but real quick, for the 18th century syphilis had three distinct phases according to them uh, separated by a period of good health and it was fatal for some but merely annoying for other people so the first one is the shanker i hope i said that right i said i said it completely differently and
0: (laughs) i have no proof which one is correct whatever
1: (laughs) so yeah the the first stage is annoying but not not the worst goes away period of health and then you get the the secondary phase which is characterized by foul smelling ulcers or pox on the bar on the body a fever a sore throat patchy hair loss headaches muscle or bone pain and then goes dormant for months or even years and sometimes you never even get to the tertiary phase and the tertiary phase according to them was the most severe phase causing large tumors that were eating away at the bones uh, and the mucous membranes, destroying the bridge of the nose or the palate. It could also lead to paralysis, spinal deformity, blindness, and other debilitating conditions. As, and as, as Maya was saying before, it could get into the brain or the eyes. There was quite a lot of disagreement over where these diseases came from, what, what were the causes, and what were the symptoms. So some medical professionals thought it might be a form of scurvy. No. But okay, Um, it could be a cause of scurvy and gout. It could be a consumption because I guess part of the disease mimicked consumption. Like we we already talked about how it's the great mimic of diseases and that's a reputation that by the 18th century it had already firmly established for itself but yeah um it could also have been identified as like any other sexually transmitted thing anything that was like vaguely itchy in the genital area and like that that sort of gets to a really important problem in the history of disease like retrospective diagnosis is not straightforward and a lot of the time it's not possible the thing that is actually affecting people is is the concern, it's the fear. Like people are talking about this, and people are really worried and really mm-hmm. concerned for their own welfare. They're concerned for the welfare of their of their families, of their society. As I said, like it's still a really morally charged charged subject um, with a lot of implications for the state of your soul. And by the 1700s, the great pox seems like it's everywhere, and anybody could be infected. Like as we talked about a lot of people were asymptomatic, and that was also a fact that was known. Like, it was known as, as a sneaky, ambiguous disease. And venereal disease during this time is a topic of huge concern, and and we see this in the amount of medical discourse, but also in the literary and artistic portrayals. Centuries later, it's still popping up in, in all sorts of art forms. Like, you have a really famous Hogarth that's called A Harlot's Progress, and I think it's a series of seven canvases. It's one of William Hogarth's most famous works, and it follows the, uh, the progress of this woman who moves to London and is very, very quickly like recruited as a prostitute. Because of her lifestyle, according to Hogarth, she now has syphilis, when actually you could have a whole other discussion about the, the societal things that got her into that position like we don't really know her story it's it's kind of tragic looking back as as a woman right now and seeing that as like a moral judgment
0: or maybe even as with all prostitution and sex work like maybe didn't choose that lifestyle maybe you know her circumstances put her into a position and
1: yeah Mm -hmm. I want to talk about prostitution and controlling women's bodies, and specifically through the whole prostitution thing in the 19th century really quickly. It becomes a really hot topic in the 19th century uh, when legislation comes into being. This is the Contagious Contagious Diseases Act of the 1860s, which is actually meant to protect soldiers from getting syphilis, and what it actually does is it cracks down on women who are perceived to be sex workers or in any way deviating from respectability. So the Contagious Diseases Act empowered policemen to basically detain anyone that they thought didn't look respectable or who could potentially be a prostitute and request that these women submit to an internal exam. And in practice, what that meant was that they would be coercing people who were poor or underage into getting these internal exams done to check whether or not they had syphilis. This was totally a judgment call. And once, once you'd submitted to the internal examination, uh, the woman in question would then be put on a list. And later on, they would be required to submit to that exam every two weeks as a check. But actually, none of the soldiers were being screened. And if you presented your papers and said you were a soldier, they just wouldn't check you. So okay. yeah, for more on that and, uh, <laughs> and for the takedown of this act, um, there's a really great article from the Welcome Collection about the Contagious Diseases Act and the beginnings of feminism. Link in the show notes. I wanted to share one more quote from the early 20th century because syphilis was such a huge problem for troops during the First World War as well. Syphilis, one of the great scourges of the early 20th century, could have been ended in theory had everyone adhered to a strict regimen of abstinence or monogamy. But as one US Army medical officer complained in 1943, the sex act cannot be made unpopular. <laughs> I love that. Don't you love that? Such a good line. <laughs> And this section ends by saying, when penicillin became available, syphilis could have been eradicated more easily. But some doctors cautioned against its use for fear that it would remove the penalty from promiscuity. Oh God. So one thing
0: about this disease that has changed in the modern day is that we have a lot of information about it. Um, And one of those things is that with a blood test, and in fact, even with a more rapid form of test, it can be easily diagnosed and then treated. Penicillin. It is the antibiotic that cures all ills, right? Pretty much any stage of syphilis is treated with penicillin. You get one shot, easy peasy. Even though we can now treat the disease pretty easily and it's part of any of these normal STI screenings, and we aren't using any of these crazy mercury treatments or whatever that were common throughout history, it is still highly infectious, and super, super, super. And I don't know that it's as much in the public consciousness today as it was in the 19th century, Um, but around 12 million people are infected with syphilis every single year, and it's especially problematic in lower-income populations and countries. It's worth noting that the amount of cases of syphilis in North America have gone up every single year, Since 2001. So in 2018, actually, we had the highest count in the U.S. since 1991. And the current rate is around 10.8 cases per 100,000 people, which is a lot of people. And it's up. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's One might argue that we are actually in the middle of an epidemic in North America right now in both U.S. and Canada. And it's like it's going upwards. That's 15% increase from the year before. So I'm going to focus on what we're going to call this current syphilis epidemic in the U.S. There's a huge increase in the total number of infections, and that's twofold. One is people who are contagious giving it to other people, and that in turn is creating a rise in congenital syphilis, which is people who are giving it to their babies. Congenital syphilis can cause death at birth or lifelong health issues. So there's a huge rise in both types of syphilis. How do we explain this increase, though? Why is this epidemic happening? Why is there this huge increase of a disease that we know how to prevent and treat? The base causes are essentially your social determinants of health. So economic status, education, and within that, there are all these other factors like the likelihood of drug abuse, limited health resources. These are all deeply interconnected as they have been throughout history. I personally think that one of the primary issues is poor health education in the US, and this is a chronic issue in the United States, and the worse sex ed is the less young people who are vulnerable to things like this know about safe sex, condom usage, other ways of preventing various STIs and STDs. Lower education levels are often linked with people who are living in poverty and other risk factors, such as a limited access to healthcare resources, in fact, I would make the argument that in the United States, the current healthcare and education system is probably in large part responsible for the fact that we are having an epidemic. Also, critically, there was this huge loss in funding at the local level, so at county and, and state level for STD prevention and screening. And so that reduces all instances of identifying syphilis, treating syphilis and enforcing partner notification which basically just means telling the people that you have had sex with that they should get
1: tested so is this a problem across the board then just like because i'm I'm thinking back to last episode when we talked about covid and um, pandemic preparedness and how there was a plan and there were resources and that was just scrapped and do you think that that's a problem across the board. Like we haven't seen an epidemic like this in a while, and the last time we kind of overreacted. So let's just not. Um, I think that's a problem, and I also think that priority in
0: terms of funding in general is the bigger problem. Right, I, I, there's just not enough money, and the priority funding in the United States is often not dedicated towards things like the health sector or the education sector, unfortunately. Right. So there's just a, I think there's a priority shift there. And that was evident in the fact that, like, there should be ongoing funding at a state level to make sure that everybody, even those without health insurance, can get tested to make sure that they don't have an STD so that they don't give it to more people, which then creates a greater burden on an already strained health system. And that's public health by definition. But there just isn't enough funding for it. Okay. And again, this leads me to my next point, which is that there are people who are more at risk and are more vulnerable for contracting syphilis. And like I said, those social determinants of health play a big role. Then there's other groups within that. So I mentioned at the very top of the episode, one super high-risk group is men who have sex with men. And so just a couple numbers for you. In the U.S., the majority of cases of syphilis are amongst men, like 87% of them. Most of those are men who have sex with men. And the rate of syphilis amongst men continues to grow even more than it does with women. Another at-risk group is within people of color, specifically African-Americans. So again, in the U.S., the rate of syphilis in African-American communities is 4.5 times higher than that in Caucasian communities. In Latino communities, it's 2.2 times higher. In Native American communities, it's 2.1 times higher, right? Mm. And all of those communities are ones that have on average, a much lower access to the kinds of services that counteract those social determinants of health. Which brings us really neatly into this conversation of how socioeconomic and racial standing creates this huge difference in who gets this disease and how they're able to seek treatment or get treated. And I think this reflects on what we were just talking about in history, about where the blame is placed and how people are othered. Whether it's indigenous communities or women or, right, there's this huge imbalance in how people are getting the disease, but also in how they are treated once they have it. I want to focus on one specific piece of background. You may have heard of something called the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment, but I'll just give a quick summary. So the experiment began in 1932 in Tuskegee, Alabama. At that point, Jim Crow laws are in full swing, segregation was how we operated, and so on and so forth. The study incorporated 625 men, all of whom were black, and 425 of those men already had syphilis. That left 200 men as a control group who did not have it. The point of the experiment was to understand the effects of untreated syphilis, but The patients who had syphilis were never informed that they had the disease, just that they were being treated for something called bad blood. Oh, no. Angel is hating this story so much. (laughs) I can't. Uh, It just gets worse. So they they were being treated for something, or they thought they were being treated for something called bad blood, which is what a lot of people thought having syphilis was at the time. And again, you have to keep in mind that this is a black community in the deep south during Jim Crow, right? It's not like they had access to education and health services. In return for participating in this bad blood study, they got medical checkups, they got burial insurance, they got rides to and from, they got compensation, and that was valuable. And they didn't know they had syphilis, so of course, they were willing participants for 40 years. They were examined, but never treated for their syphilis so that the ongoing impact of the disease could be measured. For the record, the penicillin treatment that we now know is effective became the norm in 1947. That was 15 years in. So for 15 years, there was no known treatment and they were just observed. After that, the treatment was known and the men were never offered it as an option. During that time period in the area, syphilis treatment centers were opened, and the men were not given access to them. In 1969, the CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control in the United States, confirmed the need for the study and offered official support in order for it to continue. The study was still going on in 1972, when it was uncovered by the press and revealed to the country. And that's when they put a stop to it and reparations started to be made for the men who survived and their relatives. By the time it was revealed, of the original 425 men who had syphilis at the start, only 74 of them were still alive. They were all in their early 70s. They weren't that old. And they were all suffering the effects of late-stage syphilis. So that's like tertiary phase where there's really nothing you can do. So even at the point that they were given penicillin, it didn't do all that much because it had eroded their bones, brought into their eyes, affected their spinal columns, and for some, their brain function. I'm, I'm speechless. It's horrifying. It's a horrifying piece of history. This is not the only study like that. This study and others that are shockingly similar in American history, and in fact, in North American and European history in a whole have had this noticeable impact on long-term community public health. This study, totally unsurprisingly, helped foster an atmosphere of distrust in diagnosis and treatment amongst African-American communities, especially around syphilis, obviously, not only because the study so actively took advantage of vulnerable communities, but also because it represented this very clear racial bias that was and frankly still is present in the U.S. health system. The U.S. health system has a terrible track record when it comes to medical exploitation of black people. Immediately after the reveal of this study, when it became in the public consciousness in the mid-1970s, the average life expectancy of black men in the U.S. dropped 1.5 years because people just did not want to seek health care. And you can't blame them. That's horrifying. So this study, and the reason I give you this historical context, is because It's representative of this reason why African-Americans are so predominantly affected by this disease. The sense of distress in the health system is honestly justified by this like obvious racial discrimination and bias. And I I think in all areas of life, there's clear socioeconomic and racial disparities in the U.S. And these are grossly exaggerated in health outcomes. And it's just no different for those infected by syphilis. Right. And this is it almost seems repetitive, but minority groups are disproportionately affected by poverty, bad health, less access to health services, low health insurance coverage, determinants of health that make you more vulnerable to syphilis. So you add in social and cultural discrimination and bias, potential language barriers and the fear of stigma around STDs. And you have this recipe for, like, huge inequality in how syphilis
1: can impact more vulnerable populations. When I think 1930s, I think of that as recent history. So when I consider that the Tuskegee experiments only ended in the mid-70s, like, that's that's recent. That's really, that's basically, that's
0: basically now. And it's fascinating that This is something that actually like actively reverberates in this community. People know about it, people talk about it, and it affects their health-seeking behavior. So I think I just sort of briefly touched on this idea of stigma around STDs, so I want to explore that a little bit too, and Angel touched on it also. This stigma means that people have this sense of shame at having contracted syphilis, and that's been true throughout history. If you can blame someone else, you will, and that's such a product of shame, right? It's not my Mm -hmm. fault. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that sex is still taboo for a lot of people Um, so STDs can be seen as this dirty thing and there's this whole host of other issues associated with this thinking about that always reminds me of this episode of the office where Andy tries to teach the office sex ed and he shows them a picture of like infected genitalia and uninfected genitalia and he's like they're both normal and everybody gets so grossed out and disgusted it's like yeah okay i don't want to see a syphilitic genitalia while i'm eating my pizza but also is he wrong no and is the reaction the way people still react yes okay so this stigma around syphilis contributes to this epidemic also. right. The greater the stigma associated with the disease, the less likely people, especially teenagers, are to get tested. The idea is kind of like if you don't know, you don't have it, right? Plausible deniability. Even if people see symptoms or if they are told that a partner has it and that they need to get tested, they will, statistics show that they'll delay it by a week or more because of stigma-based fear. Women especially face greater stigma and also personal anxiety around STDs in general, and they experience higher levels of stress around the idea
1: of or actually having an STD. I was just going to also say that like this is this is another really clear case. If we needed another example of why you can't dismiss fear when you're talking about public health, these might be seemingly logical decisions, but. Who hasn't felt stressed when they call for their results from the doctor? Yeah. Like, it's very much these kinds of emotions that are going to shape how you respond to health and other people's health and how you approach your own well-being. 100%. Essentially, high
0: stigma around STDs and syphilis, especially with its very visible symptoms, the pox, can reduce testing. And without testing, you can't get treated and if you don't get treated, you continue to be ill and you infect others and eventually you die. There is a lot of interesting research around how shame impacts care seeking and relationships to partners. I'll put it in the notes, but it's important to think about how our relationship to sex, sexual diseases and sexual partners impacts the way we react when we get sick. This disease is obviously still as big of a deal as it was in, you know, these 17th, 18th centuries when it was rampant. What has changed? What can we change? And I think that the baseline here is just health equity, which means the highest level of health for all people. And it's clear that that's what we need to achieve because inequality in health outcomes is one of the things that's making some people far more vulnerable to this disease. That's There's so many layers to that, right? Like education, health education, sex ed, um, access to resources, right? All of those things play into health equity. Uh, we also obviously need to address perceptions of the disease in the community to encourage testing and treatment so people aren't scared of it. We also need to make sure that there's easy access to free treatment for people who don't have health care. Another quick plug here. This is why we need organizations like Planned Parenthood that offer services like this. Yeah, and I mean, I could also talk for days about the need for health education and sex ed, and that is literally the topic of my master's dissertation, right? This is my favorite thing. But this idea of where people get sexual health information and how they use it is so important because if you're a sex ed class and you live in somewhere that is opposed at a like a actual legal level to teaching biological sexual health information and rather promotes abstinence, you do not get your sex ed information in your sex ed class. You might get it off TV, you might get it from watching porn. You might get it from your sister's cousin who's a few years older than you. Who is a trusted source of information? And who is the most relatable to you so that you feel like you can use it? And on top of that, there needs to be more funding of these local level services and increase of awareness in them so that if you do decide that you want to get treated or practice safe sex, you have somewhere to go in order to get the tools to make it valid and like a real practice Mm -hmm. for you. We have so many more resources, so much more knowledge, Mm -hmm. and yet we still have an epidemic that is arguably of the same, if not greater proportions as the ones that you were talking about. And one of the things I think that we can do now is take advantage of all of these resources that we have. There is so much room for innovation here. We have rapid tests as opposed to waiting for blood tests. There is technology that can allow you to send automated reminders to people who come in for checkups. There's so much room to brainstorm and talk about it. And it's not, obviously, it's not that there's no one already doing that. And there are so many barriers in the way of implementing it. But we're also at a place where like, we can do so much more and be more aware of the problem. And I think maybe a lot of people
1: aren't because you don't want to talk about it. It's an STD. And in terms of STDs, I think syphilis is much scarier to people, but it seems a lot less likely to happen to you. I mean, if I heard of anyone I knew getting it now, I would be extremely surprised. But actually what you're telling me is that it's quite likely.
0: Yeah, and I think it has a lot to do still, again bringing it back to this concept of other is not a disease that people who are well educated, who know about safe sex, who have clean partners get. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's treatable. It's something we could talk about. And if you just got tested and dealt with it, it would be okay. Right. It's fine, actually. I mean, it's not fine. It sucks. But like, yeah, I will conclude my (laughs) heartfelt ranting on this (laughs) by saying The modern-day U.S., the modern-day world has a lot of racial and gender-based bias in its healthcare systems. And I'm pretty confident that that's going to become a recurring theme in this podcast. Um, But I think in the current health crisis, like this pandemic that we're living through, one thing that we've become more aware of is how much more of a necessity having accessible healthcare is. Um, And I feel so lucky that I have the opportunity to be up here in Canada... In fact, one of the reasons I'm not at home with my family in the States is because I don't have healthcare there anymore. So if I got sick, it would be a disaster, a total disaster. And that being said, we do have accessible health care here in Canada. And I did a quick check and rates of syphilis in Canada are completely comparable with that of the United States, if not higher. So it's obviously not the only solution. And I think that plays back on how big a role stigma has to play in this. Um, and health education but that conversation around stigma with STDs has been going on for hundreds if not thousands of years as we saw in your section of this podcast and I just think it's so interesting how much it hasn't changed
1: yeah I mean I guess it hasn't changed because people haven't changed that much arguably and societies definitely haven't changed that much (laughs) it's upsetting (laughs) For example, we're we're in much more secularized societies than used to exist in, like, 1494. (laughs) A lot of those hang-ups still remain, and especially when you're talking about sexually transmitted diseases. Again, like, the early modern societies had huge hang-ups about sex, and those haven't really gone away. I don't know, like, I'm really interested by the issue of, of blame and why it is that we care so much about where diseases come from, like cast your mind back to all of those names for syphilis, French pox, Neapolitan pox. There there are as many names for any given disease. I'm, I'm going to continue to explore that probably in subsequent episodes and in my own work. Um, I'm just really curious about why it is that we're so invested in these origin stories and why we put so much effort into propagating narratives that don't actually have any basis in fact a lot of the time fermentation station you first Uh, okay fermentation updates
0: last week's brew was kombucha with turmeric cinnamon ginger and honey for like immunity boost but this week's brew is i managed to find fresh passion fruit on our bi-weekly grocery store run so it is passion fruit and mango kombucha and it's going to be a little taste of the ones I made in Mozambique and I'm very excited
1: it should be tasty so it's carbonating as we speak that sounds delicious okay well my fermentation station is going to be quite brief because I've basically run out of flour (laughs) I have just enough to feed my sourdough starter twice after the last time we spoke I made my first loaf of sourdough Mm. bread and it turned out amazing and then I made a ton of sourdough flatbread mm. um, dough, and I like portioned it out and I stuck it in the freezer so that when I was really depressed after my flour ran out, I would have the option of like thawing one of the little balls of dough, rolling it out, and just like having fresh sourdough flatbread whenever I wanted. And you know what? I think I'm a little bit psychic because that came in really handy when I didn't want to get out of pajamas last week so that was amazing I've been consuming yeah I've been consuming so many nice fresh flatbreads and making like a different dip every few days it's been really nice I'm so happy that we
0: just spent like an hour talking about syphilis that made me feel great
1: I'm happy we talked about syphilis too and it's really nice to see your face and I miss you I miss you too join us next time bye bye (laughs) bye
0: Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angelique and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya.